Another day of radio, another day, another dollar, another day, another broadcast. Yeah. I'm getting that on my gravestone. Another day, another dollar, another broadcast? Yeah, I'd probably cut the dollar part. I would just, another day, another broadcast. People would walk by me like, what? that's tacky. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Business Casual, everyone. I'm Tyler Kern. That's Daniel Litwin. Yeah, Daniel Litwin. I'm here with my uh, zesty blood orange diet Coke. I was going to ask about that. You know, I was getting a lot of heat from this uh, on the elevator today. Really? From none other than our very own um, uh, digital marketing strategist, Cameron Cooper. She was roasting me for drinking Zesty Blood Orange Diet Coke. And and she was like, wow, you're such a risk taker. And I was like, you're the one that bungee jumps. That's a good point. This is not a risk. (laughs) Does Cameron have room to throw shade on things like this? I don't know. Look, I'm, I'm going to say no. All I know is it's tasty. I like the remix feel, although I do prefer the ginger lime Diet Coke. So okay. if you're listening to this and you want a flavored Diet Coke, I recommend the ginger lime. We are not sponsored by Diet Coke, so this is a real brand ambassador endorsement from the voice of B2B. <laughs> <laughs> we are not sponsored by Diet Coke, but we are your source for all the B2B news and information you need to start your day. Today is Wednesday, September 18th, Daniel. I have a story for you. I want to hear it. Before we get to anything else, KFC is serving fried chicken now, but sandwiched between two glazed donuts. <laughs> I thought you were just going to end at, they're serving fried chicken now. I was going to be like, well. <laughs> They've been I, doing that, but you're a little behind, my friend. Yes. Um, but. Wow. How insane is that? Fried chicken between two glazed donuts. I mean, I guess it kind of feels like a chicken and waffles kind of move, right? I mean, you, you get your sweet, you get your savory, but... You get your diabetes. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Like, typically artisan chicken and waffles is like, you know, nice breadcrumbs on the chicken. That's kind of like a tenders. brunch. Yeah, right, a right. brunch staple in southern restaurants. But like greasy KFC sandwiched in between two just glazed dripping donuts sounds yes. like I, I don't know. I feel like I'd take a bite, I'd enjoy it, and then I'd be like... It feels like it's... My molars would <laughs> disappear. It feels like it's it's too much. Now, it, when I was in college, they did, they did the double-down sandwich, where the sandwich didn't have a bun. It just had two fried chicken, you know, <laughs> patties almost as uh-huh. the bun. And then it had, like, cheese and bacon and things like that between the two chicken patties. And I, to this day, swear that the first time I ate it, I caught a buzz off of it. It was that... <laughs> It was that wild of an experience. So I cannot imagine what eating a chicken, you know, eating fried chicken between two donuts. It's a psychedelic trip, man. I've also (laughs) grilled a hot dog through the middle of some donuts. That sounds yummy. I mean, it's it's like a kolache, basically. Yeah, it it was. It was like a. It was like a sweeter hot dog, Uh right? Like the bun was a giant pig in a blanket. Exactly. Exactly. So. All of that, uh, all of that is going on, and that was uh, very, very much uh, not B two B at all, but. 
uh, still delicious, and we got to bring it up. Well, they're sourcing their donuts from somewhere, Daniel. <laughs> That's true. They are 100% sourcing those donuts from somewhere. We'll All do right. a follow-up. <laughs> we have a busy show coming up today. Believe it or not, we're not going to be talking about uh, chicken between two, uh, two donuts for the rest of the show. We need to talk about rent and why it's so dang high yes. in, uh, <laughs> in San Francisco. The rent is so dang high party. We also really need to talk about what's going on in Saudi Arabia when it comes to oil. Yep. Uh, big, big news there over the weekend. We have a professor from Southern Methodist University here in Dallas uh, coming on to talk about that. Professor Bud Weinstein, he is coming up later on in the show in about 10 minutes. Then we're also going uh, to talk about a story that I saw in Vanity Fair yesterday that I absolutely loved. It's about Netflix's doomed pitch to Blockbuster back in 2000. And so you can imagine just the, where that story is going to go. Yeah. And then we also need to talk a little bit about Amazon and their algorithm. Uh, maybe a little bit of a controversy there as well. So all of that is coming up on the show. But before we get to any of that, Daniel, we need to talk about Apple. And we talked about Apple last week as well. Yep. They got new phones. The The camera went through meiosis. I saw a great tweet. It was like single, double, and then it split. The power, the powerhouse of the phone. It's pretty, <laughs> pretty good. Well, I, I, I saw a tweet that said like iPhone 37, you know, in the year 20, whatever. And the entire back of the phone was just cameras. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, right, right. One, one for every single person you're filming. 15 different cameras. Exactly. Well, uh, the news came out this past week that Apple has poured in another $250 million into the company that supplies the glass for iPhone. It's a company called Corning. And this is on top of a 200 million dollar investment they put in in 2017 um and this company has really done a lot of work for apple and apple is touting in the uh with the iphone 11 that it's the strongest glass that you can get obviously with the entire phone being glass now you have to have that strong glass i wonder if corning makes the most broken glass ever like if I mean, <laughs> if, if there's yeah. a ranking for glass that gets broken the most often, if uh, if Corning's up there somewhere on the list, also the it whoever has to be. whoever the glass manufacturer was of the uh, windows that were in my childhood home. Uh, oh yeah, you were smashing those. Uh, I I tried to play baseball in the backyard quite a bit. You know, just toss the ball up and hit it, <laughs> and I hit it towards the house, and I was like, I'll hit it, I'll hit it over the house every time. Not that Wrong. that's any better. I'm sure I would have like smashed a windshield, a windshield yeah, uh-huh. for sure. Um, but instead, I definitely put a hole straight through the uh, the window going into my parents' bedroom. So. Well, look, man, this news is really interesting because I think glass in general is seeing a bit of an aesthetic resurgence. Yes. Um, we're seeing it in interior design. We're seeing it in exterior design, in homes and commercial buildings. People love their glass walls. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not not the most private, but definitely really crisp and clean. There's just something about glass that transcends uh, it transcends cultures, it transcends generations. It's just, it's a crispy, clean look. And the iPhone, obviously, is just another iteration of us enjoying glass on our products. Mm-hmm. There's just something something about the tactile touch. It's smooth, but it still has kind of an earthy feel to it, right? Glass is, it comes from the earth. It's not like a, a plastic. It doesn't feel fake or cold right. to the touch. Um so, you know, when when you're dealing with with designing the best-looking phone, glass on the front, glass on the back, it definitely resonates with people. Um, and I don't know. I think there's something inviting and something just very unique about 
glass that just cannot be replicated with plastics. Yeah, I, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. Or metals, right. honestly. I, I think you're absolutely right, and I think Apple recognizes that. And so putting such a heavy investment into the company that you know produces a lot of this glass for them, um, I think speaks a lot. Now, Apple notes that since the iPhone launched in 2007, it spent nearly $3 billion with Corning on iPhone and obviously now Apple Watch and iPad Glass. And so um, all of the glass that's taken to have those types of products, I think are, you know, you're seeing just the absolute cost that uh, that Apple is putting into having those products and having them done at a high level. So I think that that is a, uh, I, I think that's a pretty big deal. Um, and, uh, and, and so we'll continue to see exactly what iPhone and, and Apple continue to do in the future as it pertains to glass and as it pertains to, uh, you know, how they continue to make it stronger and what this investment actually right. brings them. Right. And, and I wonder, uh, you know, these, these glass suppliers, um, is this kind of market going to be a substantial portion of their revenue? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, should glass manufacturers like Corning or other glass manufacturers um, look to handheld devices, mobile devices, general technology, um, and, you know, kind of consumer goods as, ooh, this might be where we want to break into the glass aesthetic more so than commercial real estate, more so than home renovations. Sure. I mean, those projects might be larger scale and per project might pay more. Mm-hmm. But I mean, imagine if you become, <laughs> I mean, imagine you're corning here. You are the glass supplier for literally all iPhones. <laughs> that market is undeniably huge. And that deal must have been, you know, champagne popping in the office. So had to be, had to be. So I, I don't know. I feel like glass is not going away. Um, if it stays strong, and the aesthetic because since the aesthetic value isn't going to go away if the glass stays strong and and you know doesn't become an impedance to people using the phone right i think it's kind of a win-win i, I don't know i think it's a an easy win i think it's an easy win I, I i would be willing to bet now that this is the only thing that corning really does right, <laughs> right. so if they ever lose apple's business Oh, that would be... Then they're absolutely screwed. Right. So I, I, I knew a guy that worked for the ad agency that used to have Sonic, right? And, oh, and so okay. they had, like, Sonic's full, like, a layout of a full Sonic restaurant, like, on their floor, like, in their advertising agency, because, like, that was what they did. That was, like, their national client. That's who they focused on. Wow. Then they eventually lost Sonic, and... They went under? Yeah. Like, yeah, well, I, they had to fire a bunch of people. Yeah, you right. Because that's just, that's just how it works. Um. Let's talk a little bit about the rent in San Francisco, It's Daniel. too dang high. It's too dang high, if you ask me. And one of the things about that is that it's causing companies to begin thinking about, hey, is it worth it for us to continue renting this building versus what if we just bought property? And so there's an example that's being uh, that's, that's been taught, I, I guess, kind of tossed around. And this article came from the uh, San Francisco Chronicle. And talks about how rents are so high that Bay Area businesses are now buying buildings. And it uses the example of BART, which is a uh, sprawling network of rail lines. And they have a headquarters in Oakland. Um, and so th- they're facing a 60% rent increase, which, first of all, is kind of outrageous in and of yeah, itself. Yeah, I mean, come on. Like, I... <laughs> The the standard of living there is just... It's so difficult to match, like, what you get in, like, a Texas, right? That's why so many people like moving to texas sure i mean a there's no uh state, state tax, income tax right income tax huge yeah. um but the the cost of living is not brutal um i understand though i mean california is temperate it is very pretty 
Um, it is a cultural hub for the United States. So I get why the prices are high, but also to a degree, rent increase of 60%, I mean, it. how is anyone supposed to react to that? I mean, are, are you trying to drive people away? You know, like, it, it's just, I don't know. It's crazy. Uh, I understand a general, like, barrier of entry. So, um, you know, it's not just suddenly everyone moves to California. Sure. But, I mean, think of what that does. That pushes away – I'm sure that pushes away small businesses. Absolutely. Um, I mean, because who, who can maintain their space with a 60% rent increase? No one. Nobody. Nobody. Especially not a, an up-and-coming small business. So, I don't know. It's It's nuts, but – I feel like this solution is really just there for the larger companies. I mean, like, because small companies are also not just going to be able to purchase, uh, you know, entire buildings. Now, what it does bring up is an interesting opportunity for more kind of WeWork, more co-working spaces. Imagine, you know, you've got 10 different companies that all kind of band together, purchase Mm -hmm. the real estate, um, and then... You know, they, they, they split the costs, but they split the benefits. Uh, now they don't have to pay yeah. exorbitant rent anymore. That might be the solution True. for smaller businesses wanting to expand in the area. But can WeWork afford the rent? I mean, yeah. They're not making right. money right now. Really? WeWork? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. No. Not even a little bit. Oh, okay. So they're, they're, they're on the struggle bus as well. Hit, hit so, me with that. Hit me with that info. Uh, so I, I, I can give you WeWork info later, but... Yeah. <laughs> the info about uh, about what BART is doing, uh, specifically just this case study as it relates to Oakland, is that BART is expecting to pay $140 million and an additional $87 million in construction and other costs to move in. But buying is going to save $1 million a year compared with renewing its lease or leasing elsewhere, wow. said their real estate director. So okay. I, I think the, the proof might be slightly in the pudding there when it comes to... Um, what's going on when it comes to to rent, specifically in that Bay Area. Now, other tech giants like Google, Facebook, Apple have spent billions of dollars to buy their property in Silicon Valley, which, I mean, they obviously have a ton of money. They can can afford to do that on a certain level. The rent is too damn high. Yeah. There he is. <laughs> yes. I love that guy. Oh, my God. <laughs> the rent is too damn high. It sure is, man. Yeah. But, but look, I mean, last point here. Um, what comes with ownership of the building, you know, is more responsibility for that building now. So even if they do offset costs, there now are probably more positions they're going to have to hire for. Sure. That's a good point. And just more um, – more oversight that they're going to have to keep in mind. Okay, now we're going to have to maintain, uh, you know, the the pipes and the bathrooms mm-hmm. and the, these facilities and everything. And, you, you know, there's not going to be a building tenant that's going to take care of this. We now own this building. We're going to have to, you know, outsource that, hire a, a facilities manager, all that good stuff. So it's, um, you know, it, it comes with its trade-offs. But if you're dealing with something like 60% rent increase, I yeah. mean, and you're going to save millions by purchasing – I think it's a no-brainer. I think it's a no-brainer, too. Well, we need to step aside for a quick minute. When we get back, we're going to be talking about oil in Saudi Arabia. But right now, we're going to hear the Mecca Minute from Jerry Mecca. Amazing. Yeah, so we're going to we're gonna listen to that here on Market Scale Radio. He's going to tell you a little bit more about cybersecurity. So here's the Mecca Minute. I don't know if you've ever had your identity stolen, but sadly, I have. Hi, I'm Jerry Mecca, and welcome to Market Scale's Mecca Minute. In the U.S. alone, more than 15 million residents have their identities used for fraud each year, with losses in the tens of billions of dollars. I hate topics that scare you into action, but this one is close to my heart. 
What I am about to tell you can prevent identity theft, but it can't fix stupid. Disclaimer, you can't hold me responsible if your identity does get compromised, even after you adopt this free service employed by banks, email providers, and shopping sites. Stay on top of malware and phishing protection, and you can stay ahead of hackers. With multi-factor authentication, registering two or more answers, only you know, like a strong password versus an easily hackable sequence, along with something you have, like a cell phone, or something you are, like facial recognition on an Apple iPhone. If you lose access, you can receive a one-time password on your cell phone that restores access within seconds. I'm Jerry Mecca, and this has been MarketScale's Mecca Minute. You know, I love that we're getting new segments on this show. Jerry Mecca uh, is a fabulous thought leader. Look him up. He used to do logistics for the Dr. Pepper Company, uh, which is pretty incredible. Um, But yeah, he's going to be doing these, I think, weekly, bi-weekly. I think it's bi-weekly. Short, minute-long segments bringing us some technology thoughts he's the man for it so stay tuned for more of those more of the mecca minutes oh yeah so all right we'd be remiss not to talk about this on our radio show on september 14th there were some coordinated strikes that hit one of saudi arabia's crucial oil facilities which put half of the country's oil capacity at risk which is equivalent to about 5 million barrels. It's actually 5.7 million. Um, And the loss of 5.7 million barrels of Saudi crude production represents the largest such disruption on record, according to some figures from the Paris-based International Energy Agency. So there's definitely some uncertainty about the origination of the attack, and that's not what really what we're going to get into here. Um, but the global oil industry had no uncertainty that this would cause ripples. It would create ripples in the overall global economy, and they were right. U.S. oil futures spiked 14.7%, the biggest jump since early 2009. Gasoline futures spiked 13 per on that on our credit card bill over the last few days. So to gauge the lasting impact of an oil disruption like this, we wanted to chat with an expert. So we've got Professor Bud Weinstein. He's the Associate Director of Energy Institute at Southern Methodist University, our very own SMU here in Dallas. Professor Weinstein, great to have you on. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I am great. Thank you so much for joining us and giving us some time to break this down. So when the news broke, I know you're plugged into this industry, obviously. What was the resounding reaction from oil um, and gasoline professionals? I think the professionals were fairly sanguine in the sense that, yes, uh, we lost 6% of global oil supply. But from the get-go, the belief was this would be a short-term disruption. And indeed, it's proved to be so. As you mentioned, there was a huge jump in oil and gasoline futures prices on Monday. But yesterday, about half of that gain was given back. The Saudis said that they would get most of their production back on stream by the end of the week, and by the end of the month, it'd be back to full capacity. So I think, yes, it was a significant withdrawal, but the impact is going to be fairly minimal. Yeah, and I mean, I guess it at least shows some general confidence in the global oil industry's ability to react to these short-term disruptions and to be able to solve those issues quickly, which, you know, I'm sure is kind of forced to be built into the infrastructure of this uh, of this industry because if you allow these disruptions to linger for too long that could create lasting effects on the industry well there's a big difference 
If this had happened 20 years ago, futures would have jumped 25 or 30 percent. We would have seen you know, 20, 30 dollar barrel increase in oil prices. The big difference today is compared to 15 or 20 years ago is that the United States has become the world's largest oil producing country. Hmm. So we are the buffer. And because we've become so dominant in oil production, and because we're now exporting 3 million barrels a day, right. that has a calming effect on the markets. So when you have disruptions like we saw in Saudi, or a couple of tankers are attacked in the Strait of Hormuz, right. it doesn't have the same effect on oil prices as it would have been the case in the past. So the kind of disruption that would really be causing some sweat would be if we saw something happen in the Permian Basin, is, is what you're saying? No, what I'm saying is the Permian Basin, you know, has a tremendous amount of excess capacity that could be brought online. Right, exactly. If needed. We also have 600 million barrels stored in our strategic petroleum reserve. The Saudis have a reserve. The Europeans have a petroleum reserve as well. So, there are lots of stocks available, and I think the market is looking at all these stocks, and that's why prices have dropped considerably. I think the real danger is further escalation. If we have a shooting war in the Middle East, if the Saudis you know, retaliate against the Iranians, let's say, and the Iranians block the Strait of Hormuz, that's a totally different story, and right. we would see a significant increase in prices that would be sustainable. I mean, do you think that the possibility of an escalation like that um, is forcing conversations, at least maybe with diplomats in the United States, to have a, a more um, diplomatic approach to, to try to quell uh, some of that unrest and uncertainty? Oh, absolutely. I'm sure there's a lot of diplomatic activity occurring behind the scenes to prevent an escalation of this dust-up. But we're talking about a part of the world that has been politically and economically unstable for a long, long time. And the big change, as I said before, is that with the U.S. now becoming a major play in, player in global oil markets, the Middle East still matters, but it doesn't matter as much as it used to in terms of oil production and oil prices. The Saudis are now the number two oil producing country in the world. Right. Right now, for the last couple of years, we've been number one. Right now, because of some Saudi production is offline, we're the number one exporter. So that just changes the market, and it changes the dynamic, and it takes away a lot of the uncertainty that we used to see in the past. For sure. So last question for you here. I mean, yeah, obviously you said it yourself, unrest in the Middle East has been going on for a long time, and honestly it seems kind of endless. Um, but on top of all that, Oil producers are also having to deal with consistent tropical storms. I mean, totally different issue, right? But um, these tropical storms, we had someone on our podcast to talk about this um, during the most recent hurricane. These hurricanes could potentially damage oil rigs, and that can cause some fluctuations in prices and just in general uh, global oil production. Of those two, that's true. Um, of those yeah, that, two, that's does, true. We've yeah. we've seen that we've seen that in the past, but here again, the disruptions are fairly short term. Right. Exactly. Remember several years ago. We had Hurricane Harvey. It kind of disrupted the infrastructure along the Texas-Louisiana Gulf Coast. We saw a spike in gasoline prices. But a couple of weeks later, everything was pretty much back to normal. 
Another thing that's important to keep in mind is that we may have seen a 20-cent increase in average prices per gallon of gasoline over the weekend, but prices are still lower than they were a year ago. Mm. Right, exactly. And I mean, like like you said, they are relatively short-term disruptions. Um, so, I mean, yeah, basically what you're saying here is that Though these are uh, important things to be taking into account, uh, they are not the kind of large-scale disruptions that the whole global oil industry should totally be worried about. However, is there something that you think is more pressing to global oil stabi- uh, stability or just the market in general um, that you think global oil producers should be keeping an eye on? Well, the number one issue facing global oil producers is uh, the environmental movement and in particular pushback from environmentalists who are arguing that fossil fuels are destroying the planet. We've got to get off of oil and natural gas and coal as soon as possible. We've got to keep it in the ground. That's the number one concern of oil and gas producers, particularly in the United States, but increasingly around the world. Yeah. Well, at least as our um, election here coming up, continues to ramp up and some of these conversations uh, maybe become a little more timely. We will definitely have you back on to chat on them because I agree that definitely could be an existential threat to the uh, global oil industry. So we will have you back on again soon. it's certainly going to be an issue and it'll be an issue in the presidential campaign, that's for sure. Yes, it absolutely, absolutely will. All right, Professor Weinstein, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure chatting. Anytime. Man, the the global oil industry is just such an intricate, dynamic uh, market, and right. the fact that there's so much there's so much geopolitical action that 100%. influences it, I think, makes it the more uh, tumultuous and just that much more uncertain. Yeah, I don't know. Makes my makes my head spin sometimes. It's a wild time, man. It really is, and, and it always is, especially when we're talking about that region of the world and we're talking about the amount of money that gets tossed around when it comes to oil. It's uh, it's crazy. Yeah, but he, I mean, he brings up a good point. We are the largest oil producer in the world, and that used to not be that way. Um, That's a good point. The Permian Basin itself, um, I think, is. I remember we did several stories on this. It's like either the largest or the second largest mm-hmm. oil field in the world, or something. I mean, that's incredible. That's like in our Texas backyard, basically. Yeah, it was um, just sitting there. And just, I don't know, oil production always feels like such a foreign talking point, right? Oh, yeah, that's, you know, the big oil giants. Right. Saudi Arabia and Qatar. You know what I mean? Like, it, they're all over there. No, the United States is now leading the charge, and that means we get to dictate the market a little more. And I guess that does mean when there's unrest, when there's uh, hurricanes and stuff, we get to pad the supply a little bit. And sure. And I guess, I don't know. Keep the industry at bay. Well, we'll see how this uh, situation continues to develop because it's going to be absolutely fascinating. For sure. Daniel, I want to pivot away really quick. Oh, yeah. Pivot! Yeah. I, I just want to I just want to pivot away from the <laughs> oil industry real quick to tell you a little story that I read in Vanity Fair. It's coming out uh, in a book. It was an excerpt from a book by Mark Randolph. And the story he was is the, nuts, dude. He was one of the co-founders and the first CEO of Netflix. And the book is called That Will Never Work, the book, or excuse me, The Birth of Netflix and the Amazing Life of an Idea. And it details the story about Netflix, the uh, three kind of guys that were running Netflix very, very early on in the year 2000. Mark Randolph, the writer of the book, uh, the first you know CEO, one of the co-founders, his co-founder, Reed Hastings, who's the current CEO of Netflix, and their CFO, Barry McCarthy, 
all traveled from California to Dallas for a meeting with the executives from Blockbuster. And so uh, this this uh, article is in Vanity Fair, and it goes on to explain just the intricate details of that meeting and how they made this big trip. They pulled up to Renaissance Tower, which is right next door to the building that we're in right now, actually. You can look out a window and see Renaissance Tower. And it details just their pitch to Blockbuster. And they walked in and they said, hey, look, here's the thing. We know we're a small company, but we're more equipped to deal with what's going on on the, you know, the Internet side of things. The fact of the matter is that the majority of Blockbuster users, while they had like over 20 million active users, you know, a month at the time, Blockbuster's users largely did not like the company. They just didn't have an alternative, right? <laughs> right. Like, Family video wasn't accessible enough. <laughs> exactly. Well, everything from poor selection to, you know, not well-kept stores to Oh, my God. DVDs, like, gashed down the yes. middle and put back in the box. Yes. Very few people, like, you may have enjoyed the experience of going to Blockbuster and picking out a movie and, like, that family-type thing, but... By and large, you didn't have good feelings about the brand of Blockbuster. Right. It was simply what they provided was the only way to get that. Right. And so they walked in and they sat down and they said, hey, look, like we noticed these things. You know, and they said, you know, the the CEO of Blockbuster at the time, uh, John Antiaco, uh, was like, okay, so what are you looking for? And they were like, what if we partnered together? You bought us out for $50 million. $50 million. Which is like chump change now when you talk about how big netflix is and how absolutely dead blockbuster is exactly it's just it's nuts right i love these kind of stories because they show that you have to have good instinct if you want to be a successful businessman or woman or person whatever it it, you need to know when the market is shifting Mm -hmm. and be open to change exactly all of these ceos leaders whatever and anyone that is extremely stubborn in adapting to the shifts in the market and to analyzing, even if you are the leader, where your own faults lie, mm-hmm. you know, if if you are too close-minded, narrow-minded on that, you are going to get destroyed by the next movement. Um, and I think we're honestly starting to hit that point with streaming as well, because at the end of the day... Consumers are paying for, like, cable packages at this point if they want to consume all the content that they, you know, used to get. Exactly. Right? And so it's a totally different conversation. Netflix kind of plays into that. But but still, this idea of content consumption and how we get media to the end user is, I think, such a fluctuating conversation. I think Netflix isn't even, like, the final, oh, we solved it. Right. You know, there's another step. I'm not sure what that is, but... Buster did not have the <laughs> the big vision, and I don't know. I just I love these stories. I love these kind of like fly on the wall stories about business meetings, and um, they just reveal so much about people's instincts, business instincts, um, and and how they win and how they lose. One hundred percent. If you talk to people from you know previous generations, and you talk about Sears, Sears used to be Amazon. Like they brought everything under one roof, and everyone's like, oh my gosh, Sears is invincible. Sears was putting out of business mom and pop stores and things like that, and Sears was the big evil. And I think it's important to remember that every business, no matter how large, is one decision, one innovation away from being extinct and being gone. And all of a sudden, no more Sears. All of a sudden, no more Blockbuster Video. And it wasn't, it wasn't this you know, gigantic thing. It was, it was an idea that was sitting right there in their lap that they decided to ignore. And so you're always one innovation away from being 
extinct from being a dinosaur. Dude, and for real. That's what happened to Blockbuster. It's what's happening to Sears. And I think it's just a. It, I think this story was just an interesting microcosm of what I think happened a ton around that time, where people said, "Hey, we're a young company. We have this idea. Uh, you know, let, let's do something with and they're it." They're like, "Ha ha ha! Get out of my office!" Exactly. And exactly. now they're defunct. Now they are gone. <laughs> and just like they are, so we are, are we. we are now gone. <laughs> Tears of sadness. We aren't defunct though. We'll be back no. on Friday with another episode of Business Casual. But until then, I've been one of your hosts, Tyler Kern. I'm your other host, Daniel Litwin. If you didn't know. Notice we kind of switched start times. I think we're going to be moving.